This episode of the Real-Time History Podcast is sponsored by Nebula. Subscribe to Nebula to listen to this podcast and watch all our Real-Time History videos earlier and ad-free. You also get access to exclusive historical deep-dive documentaries like our World War II series 16 Days in Berlin and Rhineland 45 on the dramatic and decisive final stage of the Second World War. Sign up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash Real-Time History Podcast for just $30 for an entire year and support this show. All right, so I'm happy to welcome to the podcast today our guest, Damien Acoulon. Damien is a PhD candidate at the Université Paris-Nanterre and the Technische Universität Braunschweig. Uh, why don't you try saying that three times fast and get back to us? Um, but thank you very much, Damien, for joining us today. Damien is a specialist in air crew in the First World War and more particularly uh, in ACES. So we're going to get into the air war, which is something that we haven't touched on in a little while on the Great War Channel. So I'm happy to get the chance to do that. Uh, thanks for being with us today, Damia. Uh, thanks for your invitation. So let us jump in with a bit of a general question so we can kind of uh, whet our appetite here. How did you get into the topic? What drew you to the air war in particular? And why did you get interested in ACES? Uh, so, uh, yeah, uh, unlike uh, many colleagues uh, who work on the history of aeronautics, uh, I had no particular interest in aviation before. And in fact, uh, I discovered the subject by uh, studying the life of a man uh, who came from a village near my hometown in the Vosges uh, mountains, so in France, in uh, northeastern France. And uh, in his uh, in his uh, native village, uh, René Fonck was uh, commemorated for uh, having been the ace of aces of the Great War, which I found a bit uh, curious. And uh, when I wanted to find out more, uh, I learned that uh, he had also become a member of parliament, that he had attempted a non-stop flight over uh, the Atlantic before Charles Lindbergh, and that he had had contact with many foreign pilots, such as uh, the German aces uh, Ernst Udet and uh, Hermann Göring. So I found that uh, fascinating that the Frenchman and the uh, German pilots could meet after the war and uh, being kind of friends. And uh, as I explored uh, the subject in a greater depth, uh, I realized that uh, beyond the myth of the Knights of the Sky, uh, there was a lot more to be studied on the topic and particularly on the French side. So uh, I, I decided to carry on this uh, to make it a PhD dissertation about the careers of the aces of the Great War in France, uh, Germany and the United Kingdom during and after the war. So uh, this is uh, how I came uh, here. I am therefore uh, now writing uh, a collective biography of these war aces uh, who are not only pilots, but also sometimes more rarely though, uh, observers and uh, machine gunners uh, with the hypothesis that uh, the training and the media exposure uh, these aviators uh, received during the war often benefited them uh, in the interwar period. So in terms of social status, for instance, in terms of careers, networks, etc. 
And um, I look into that and uh, I am also interested in uh, their place uh, within uh, veterans' movements and how their image as uh, war aviators uh, was exploited once uh, the conflict was over to assert uh, the importance of uh, maintaining and creating air forces. So uh, it's uh, a broader interest in uh, the the history of air forces. So that's uh, what interests me. And uh, it is also, above all, I would say, uh, the men and the fascination they triggered and uh, still are triggering to some extent. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I, I love when these kind of history careers get started by something local uh, because it's kind of a similar story to my own, but uh, I'll leave that for another, for another time. Um, good. So uh, let's continue with maybe the, the uh, meta level, the general stuff. When we talk about aces, yes, they're famous. Yes. They, they're kind of media darlings and so on, but What is an ace? How, how did the concept of an ace come about? Um, and was it different in the Air Force uh, of different states? Um, the concept of aces uh, is uh, of French origin and uh, probably appeared uh, in the squadrons uh, a few months before its publication in the press uh, in May 1916. So it's a very, uh, very... A localized uh, phenomenon uh, in the war, I would say. Uh, some authors uh, indicate that the word is used uh, from the death of uh, the French pilot Celestin Pegou uh, at the end of August 1915, but uh, it is still quite debated and I'm not really sure about it, I would say. Uh, I, I didn't find any evidence of it. Uh, but what is certain is uh, that it was the Germans who, f uh, who, who first, from the end of 1915, Uh, highlighted some particularly brilliant pilots uh, because of their repeated victories. Uh, they were called canone, uh, so rifles basically, and uh, the names were made public uh, in the Heeresbericht, so the General Military Dispatch. I'm not sure of the translation here, but uh, so uh, their names were published uh, up to their fourth air victory. Uh, and the French adopted the same system during the Battle of Verdun in February 1916 uh, in order uh, to bolster the morale of the troops and the civilians, uh, but uh, up to, uh, up to uh, the fifth victory. So uh, it's a bit different uh, with the German one. And uh, it shed light on a brilliant young man who could uh, stand up straight uh, and were not sold uh, by the mud of the trenches. Uh, it is these pilots, uh, whose names were published in the Communiqué Général des Armées in French, uh, after they won five confirmed aerial victories, uh, who were given the title of ace by the journalists. So uh, the, the army provide names and then uh, the label and the stories around, uh, around them are written by the journalists. And this system and uh, this name of as, ace, uh, asso in Italian, as uh, in German, uh, was then taken up and adapted by most armies uh, in Italy, Austria, Hungary, uh, the United States, 
Uh, but with the notable exception of the United Kingdom, uh, which has always refused uh, to establish differences uh, in status between aviators uh, of the same rank, and uh, actually they were uh, have, they they were doing the same duties, so they they had the same missions, and uh, they always refused to publish the names. So uh, this system of uh, and this name of as Ace, uh, Asso in Italian, Asso in German, uh, were then taken up and ad adapted by most armies. So uh, in Italy, Austria, Hungary, uh, Hungary uh, the United States, uh, with the notable exception of the United Kingdom, uh, which has always refused uh, to establish differences in status between aviators of the same rank. Uh, although English politicians and the war cabinet in particular were very tempted to exploit uh, the positive effects that these uh, shiny bright men could bring on public morale. Uh, during the Battle of the Somme, uh, pilots like uh, Albert Ball and James McCullen, for instance, uh, still rose to fame and were named aces by the British press, but the Royal Flying Corps uh, commander, uh, Hugh Trenchard, uh, always refused to establish uh, this systematic publication of the names of pilots uh, according to their aerial victories. And the death of the young Albert Ball, uh, he was less uh, than uh, 21 years old, uh, in May uh, 1917, uh, more or less uh, ended debased uh, on the question because uh, of the negative effect his death uh, had on public morale. And this did not prevent uh, newspapers, uh, though, to, uh, from promoting some particularly successful aces. And uh, Prime Minister uh, David Lloyd George uh, still prayed the cavalry of the clouds uh, in 1918. So the British were rather puzzled by this aces issue and uh, kept an ambiguous feeling uh, with this system. Um, an important aspect of the ICE system, though, uh, was uh, his uh, selectivity, and that is also an interesting aspect, I think. Uh, the air uh, warfare became an increasingly collective affair, uh, which led to a higher number of casualties, and uh, in order to maintain uh, the prestige and selectivity of this exceptional honor of becoming an ACE, uh, the bar in France uh, was raised to uh, 10 victories around uh, June uh, 1917. It's not really clear when, but uh, it's uh, in the summer uh, 1917. And the same thing in Germany happened. Uh, it is uh, really in Germany, the the, uh, the reward of the Prussian order uh, pour le mérite, which made the difference between the pilots and uh, the number of uh, victories necessary to obtain it uh, to uh, increase regularly during the war to reach uh, to reach uh, 30 aerial victories in November 1918. So uh, quite a lot, actually, uh, as compared to the the beginning of the war. Okay, yeah, that's quite the quite an interesting development uh, over time. The sliding scale. I think most people who have a passing or popular or amateur interest in it, um, as essentially I do, since the air war is not my has not been the main focus of my reading over the years. Um, yeah, an ace is an ace is an ace, but obviously uh, that's uh, not the case. Um, now, in terms of this popular interest, 
it still exists, right? We still have movies coming out, like I think it was called Flyboys from uh, a few years ago. And uh, there's still uh, a popular interest in aces. Do you think that this has, like it contributes to the historical understanding, it gets people interested or it gives kind of, you know, anchor points to uh, study the topic? Or do you think that it, kind of has a negative effect and, and effect and maybe some of that propaganda and romance that's associated with it still colors uh, our views and still pushes historians you know to try to find sexy book titles to sell books that are related to that original kind of propaganda concept I think it still has a color of its own, but um, it, it tends to change now, and uh, especially in academia. But, uh, so it depends really uh, the time you're considering. Um, uh, the system of ACES was very successful and met uh, with a strong echo, uh, in particular thanks to many biographies and autobi autobiographies, uh, which helped uh, building young stars of the war. And uh, it's still uh, very popular. Uh, I think uh, many of these biographies uh, are still bestsellers and there are always new books on uh, foc focusing on these men. But uh, we saw uh, in recent years uh, uh, always more uh, books published uh, on uh, broader aspects of the, uh, of the air war. Um, and it is not necessarily uh, a bad contribution uh, of the, the the popular focus on the, the aces is also quite interesting in itself um, these pilots told a certain vision of the war and they reinforced uh, many romantic representation of the battles uh, as they pilot uh, their machines they seem to master new technologies and uh, uh, as compared to uh, what happened uh, to uh, in the trenches or to civilians who were bombed, uh, but and it is this vision of the air war uh, which had a long remained in popular memory and which was narrated after the war uh, to maintain the illusion of a clean weapon and which would bring victory to itself uh, in the next war, but. Uh, I think uh, we can see many studies for several decades now who change the flawed vision of the first air war, insisting in particular on the bombing of the civilian targets uh, for the purposes of uh, psychological warfare. And especially as compared to the Second World War, there are lots of uh, uh, lines who are drawn now uh, between the First World War uh, as a test and the interwar, a colonial field as test of what happens in the Second World War. And also many works on aerial observation, which was way more important in terms of strategy and uh, war operation uh, on the ground uh, during the war. And the ACs were only a minority that clearly masked uh, the whole air war uh, of that time. But there is still uh, much work to be done uh, on air war, in particular on ground personnel, such, such as uh, the mechanics, for instance, of which we, uh, little is known. 
However, uh, I think it's still relevant to study the ACEs uh, in order to uh, unveil uh, their uh, human nature, I would say, to show uh, how they were not uh, only uh, brilliant warriors, uh, very talented, etc., etc., uh, saying that they are the only uh, reality of the war. I think... Uh, we can show that it uh, it created a flawed uh, image of uh, aviation and also that flawed image in itself it's interesting in terms of the constitution of uh, the air forces uh, in the interwar for instance and uh, a lot of uh, a lot of other works uh, recently uh, brought a more uh, a more comprehensive approach of the aviation of that time especially on the industrial and log logistical aspects of air warfare uh, and uh, that indicates that we are uh, now on uh, on the right track uh, to uh, to write this uh, history so we shouldn't uh, oppose this popular vision popular interest with uh, our knowledge of the period uh, there are quite a complementary approach uh, although, although all the mainstream films are always uh, devoted to these aces and uh, always uh, propagating uh, wrong stories about them so that's a bit annoying but for the rest uh, i don't think it's a problem for studying uh, this history in particular yeah that is the historian's cross to bear is that uh, we can never fully enjoy history movies because there's so, so much that drives us crazy in them. Um, now, of course, I suppose there's no individual figure who is more emblematic of all of, uh, all of this um, history of the aces and emphasis on the aces than, of course, the Red Baron, Manfred von Richthofen. Um, and we have a viewer question about a book that he published called The Red Fighter Pilot in the English uh, translation, which was originally written, I believe, in 1917. What does a source like this tell us and uh, in terms of its usefulness for someone like you? And what does it not? And there was a, another edition that came out, I learned, after the war, so not going to be subject to the same kind of pressures and censorship was it changed uh, from the 1917 version? So a bit of a combo question there. Oh, yes, uh, it's a very interesting question. And because obviously I've read and compared both, uh, both versions. Uh, so the Rotokampflieger, the Red Fighter pilot, is from, uh, was published in 1917 and was renamed uh, Ein Heldenleben, uh, uh, The Life of a Hero in uh, 1920. And uh, it's a very interesting book because uh, it is signed by the most famous pilot of the end of the war, uh, Manfred von Richthofen, uh, who was uh, presented as a successor of uh, Oswald Bölke, who led the first German fighter squadron in 1915-1916, and uh, who was one of the very first uh, pilots to become extremely famous, I will say, one of the first aces, even, uh, even if uh, the word doesn't exist uh, at that time in Germany. 
And uh, Richthofen became the leader of the Jagdgeschwader 1, uh, uh, the first fighter squadron, uh, when he died in April uh, 1918 and uh, had uh, 80 official victories. So he was uh, really the most famous pilot of his time. Uh, he was very important to the German propaganda. And um, when he was wounded uh, in the spring of uh, 1917, Uh, he took advantage of his uh, convalescence to dictate his war memoirs and uh, he completed them during a leave in October 1917 and then it was published uh, by uh, the Ulstein Publishing House uh, in a collection of uh, war memoirs sold for uh, one mark. So uh, that is to say uh, a relatively affordable price even for the German middle class that was uh, suffering for severe war restrictions. I think this context is pretty important to understand how this book uh, was sold uh, in a very uh, high number. Uh, 300,000 copies of the book were sold before the end of the war and a total of 1,226,000 before uh, 1939, making it is a bestseller of German war literature uh, before uh, Erich Maria Remarque's All Quiet on the Western Front. It's really the most, uh, uh, the bestseller uh, of, uh, of the war uh, in Germany and maybe in the world. It is therefore a, a fundamental book to understand the air war told and represented in the German culture, but not only, uh, since uh, it was also translated into several Scandinavian languages, English and Spanish, and Spanish uh, during the war. And, uh, so it had also uh, a global impact. So in this respect, uh, it is uh, really, really interesting uh, as a source. Uh, But uh, the main problem of it uh, as a historical source uh, is that it was a, a manuscript that was orally dictated uh, by the pilot to a some stenographer uh, from Ulstein before being reworked and edited in Berlin by the publisher, the censorship, and the press service of uh, the IDEFLIG, the Inspection der Fliegertruppen, the inspectorate uh, of uh, the flying troops. So we don't know actually uh, how much uh, of it is from Richthofen and uh, how much of, of it was from the censorship. And we know, for example, that uh, uh, the Hauptmann, uh, Herrisch von Salzmann, made some changes uh, to the manuscript. But uh, it is very difficult uh, to know uh, what is original or wh what has been added or removed since the manuscript has disappeared. And uh, even if uh, Richthofen certainly approved the publication, it would be very difficult to draw from it a faithful uh, testimony of his hair war. So as a source, I wouldn't consider it uh, relevant. Relevant. Um, and this uh, all the more that uh, some passages, as you suggested, were uh, deleted uh, in the version of the book <coughs> reissued in uh, 1920, that is, after Manfred von Richthofen's death. Uh, in this uh, late, uh, later version, 
1917, he appeared like a very uh, good soldier, very devoted to his country and uh, killing uh, whoever, whoever he could uh, to uh, make Germany succeed. Uh, here uh, in the second version, he appears a bit more chivalrous uh, since uh, he no longer says, for instance, that uh, the blood of English pilots uh, will have to flow in streams. So this uh, passage is just uh, cut. Uh, off, off uh, the, the book and uh, at another time uh, rather than being annoyed by an enemy pilot and raising in his harm uh, against him uh, he gives uh, him a rather sympathetic hand signal here so these are only a few changes to the manuscript not so many uh, editions but uh, they are significant and show that um, Freedoms were taken from the original manuscript uh, by uh, some uh, editor, maybe the family, we can't know. So personally, I do, I do not use it at a, as a testimony, but rather as a source uh, revealing the mechanisms of construction of a heroic figure during and after the war, since the 1920 version was edited uh, again in 1933 uh, for the 15th uh, anniversary of his death. And 1933, you know, uh, this coincided uh, with the Nazi takeover and uh, it allowed uh, another uh, ace of the First World War, uh, Hermann Göring, uh, who had been the last leader of the Jagdgeschwader Eins after uh, Richthofen's death. Uh, so uh, Goering drew symbolic lines uh, between the mythical pilot and his, himself. He wrote a preface. Uh, and with the support of the Richthofen family, uh, he launched a, a policy of remembrance that made uh, Manfred uh, the symbol of the German aviation. So, for example, the anniversary of the death of, Manf of uh, Manfred von Richthofen uh, became the day of the Luftwaffe in 1935. And in, in this way, uh, the German air marshal uh, strengthens uh, his leg legitimacy and prestige as leader in the Nazi, Nazi Germany. And uh, it is also this particular history of the memory of Richthofen uh, that has made him such a popular character uh, of the aviation of the Great War uh, to the present day. So I think the history of the book is even more interesting than what is written uh, in the book, um, which can't, uh, cannot really be trusted. That is a great analysis of a source out there. For all you uh, undergrad students or who, are, who are listening, that is what historians do um, with, uh, with sources. Um, yes, we had another viewer question that's going in a completely other direction now. Um, in World War II, there was this famous unit in the Red Air Force nicknamed the Night Witches because the air crew were female. Was there any sort of forerunner? Was there any involvement of women in the air war in the First World War? So uh, we know that some female pilots have applied to participate in the air war for their countries, um, but their applications have uh, all been refused. Uh, in France, in particular, uh, they were told that the Hague Conventions uh, did not state it uh, in case they were taken by the enemy, uh, that they would be considered prisoners of war. And um, that was the ground for their eviction from uh, military service. 
Uh, however, uh, some women uh, had obtained their pilot license before the war, and the first uh, aero club for women, uh, the Stella, was founded in Paris in 1909. Uh, but uh, there were only eight women, so out of uh, 966 licenses uh, in France, that is a tiny minority. And uh, when these air women gathered in an association called uh, the Union Patriotique des Aviatrices de France, so the Patriotical Union of uh, air women, of the French air women, in April 1915 to ask uh, for their integration into the army, uh, offering to convey aircraft and uh, to serve as auxiliaries at the at the home front. Uh, they were not numerous enough to really be heard and listened, so they were uh, maintained away of the army. But uh, there are stories about uh, Marie Marvin, uh, nicknamed the fiancée du danger, so the bride of danger, uh, who would have succeeded with uh, male clothes uh, to carry out a bombing mission in uh, 1915 for which uh, she would have uh, received the French War Cross. Uh, but uh, there is no evidence of any of this in the archives, so uh, it's a bit uh, debatable. I don't know. Uh, I, I have personally uh, strong doubts that uh, it uh, really happened. Uh, I also heard that there were some uh, Welsh women in the uh, Royal Air Force at the end of the war, but uh, again, I haven't been able to check it out yet, and uh, I hope maybe one day. Uh, according to the French historian uh, Marie-Catherine Villatou, uh, there were no female pilots on the Western Front during the Great War. But uh, several Russian air women are well known. Uh, for example, uh, we have the Princess uh, Eugenie uh, Shakovskaya, sorry for my Russian, I'm pretty bad at it, carried, uh, who uh, carried out observation missions uh, from uh, 1914 until uh, 1917. There were also uh, Hélène Samsonova and Nadezhda Dektereva, uh, who is uh, famous for being the first airwoman killed in action uh, during a flight over the Austrian front in 1915. So pretty important figure and uh, also the princess Sophie uh, I guess it's Sofia in, in Russian uh, Dolgo uh, Rukaya uh, who was a test pilot uh, pretty dangerous uh, task actually but uh, none of them was assigned uh, in a fighter squadron so that is maybe the attack uh, was certainly and had certainly to remain the task for men in a virile, a virile universe that uh, strengthened itself during the first world war so on the wall uh, air women were mostly considered as uh, intrepid amazons who violated uh, gender rules but were not to be like normal women and couldn't uh, above all surpass men uh, even they sometimes competed, uh, competed with them uh, in, during uh, free oppositions uh, and this became uh, clearer and stronger uh, during the interwar with this idea that uh, air women were modern uh, uh, not air women sorry uh, airmen were modern chivalrous warriors and although seducers so they had uh, the they were part of the um, the military world, the strong world, uh, and uh, should not be held back on the ground by women. 
So uh, in this ID, the air remained too dangerous for a fragile woman in this occidental view. And uh, the few notable exceptions uh, were mostly described as uh, daring tomboys. So uh, in the end, on the Western Front, uh, uh, no, I, I don't have any uh, any trace of any uh, air woman, but uh, on the Russian front, definitely they were. All right. That's, that's fascinating. I didn't know uh, much about that uh, side of things. Um, for our last question, let's go to an area that uh, I believe you're quite familiar with since you've published a book on the topic. And it's about the French ace of aces that you mentioned uh, earlier uh, as being part of the origin story of your interest in all of this, René Fonck. I have to say, I tended to overlook him uh, over the years. And when I recently came across something about uh, air aces and so on, and I saw him standing up there on the list, with 75 victories above Billy Bishop from Canada, who I was raised on as being, you know, the top allied uh, ace, almost as an assumption, I thought to myself, man, how is it that the highest scoring allied ace of the war is not really better known? And not just by me. I mean, may maybe I'm the committer of the sin here, but I think this is a general phenomenon, at least outside of France, that uh, Funk is not that well known. And um, I was wondering why you think that might be the case. Uh, there are uh, several things uh, about him. Uh, his personality uh, undoubtedly uh, contributed a little bit to his unpopularity, uh, especially in comparison with the other uh, great French ace, uh, Georges Guinmer, uh, who was the first French ace in February 1916 who look very young and had the face, the face of an angel, uh, who came from a bourgeois family and was described as very sympathetic, much appreciated uh, by uh, his comrades uh, with a rather spectacular and brilliant fighting style, sorry. And uh, this depiction was the complete opposite of René Fonck, uh, who arrived uh, later and as an AC. He became an ace only in May 1917, and that that is maybe the the big difference. Uh, he, he he became an ace quite late uh, in this air war. Um, he was of uh, modest origin. Uh, he did not necessarily uh, knew the code of uh, the high society, and a lot of airmen uh, were from a uh, bourgeois or a uh, noble origin. He was only a mechanic uh, before the war uh, from a peasant family. So uh, not, uh, not very uh, trained, really uh, prepared for uh, this kind of uh, social uh, ground, uh, social background. And uh, when he arrived, uh, uh, when he became uh, one of the most famous fighter pilots of his time, uh, the air warfare uh, was then more sophisticated and uh, Funk's method was described as more rational. Uh, he was a cold-blooded uh, cold killer, uh, and, uh, whereas uh, Guinmer uh, was said to be throwing himself into a chivalrous duel in the air. Uh, Funk basically followed the tactical instructions uh, prescribed 
went always by surprise from behind or from the sun to avoid being shot back. That is, uh, he wasn't uh, so chivalrous uh, in the after all. And this opposition between uh, the fiery uh, night of the air uh, from the beginning of the air war and the cold-blooded killer uh, of the end of the war made a lasting impression and uh, definitely wasn't loved as much as uh, other aces like Georges Guinmer, Albert Ball or uh, Charles Nagesser, for instance, in France. Uh, in addition to this, uh, Georges Guinmer was killed in flight on uh, the 11th of September 1917 and uh, his name was inscribed in the Panthéon, so the French building for a nation's hero in Paris. Uh, and several biographies have been written about him. He became a symbol of the French military aviation. Uh, every year he's uh, commemorated uh, on the French air bases uh, since then. And uh, because the death in flight uh, strikes people's minds. And Guinmer, uh, who could not fail since he was dead, was made and remained an exhilarating myth after the war. So it is the same for Manfred von Richthofen, the same for Oswald Bölke. So the, those pilots who died in the war remain so pure, so as, as conceived by the propaganda during the war, that uh, they, they could have this very positive image over the time. Uh, René Fonck, on the other hand, uh, survived. After the war, uh, he had uh, the time to fail several times, and, uh, you know, history only remembers the winners. Um, his attempt to fly over the Atlantic uh, ended up uh, with a burning plane in New York on the, the 21st of September uh, 1926. Uh, although he became a member of the parliament, uh, the French parliament, in 1919, uh, he then failed uh, in every subsequent election. And when he came back to the forefront of the political scene, uh, he was a colonel who advised Maréchal Pétain and met with German militaries in Paris under the Vichy regime uh, between uh, 1940 uh, 40, sorry, and 1944. So he therefore left the image of a uh, an unpleasant man who made uh, the wrong choices, even though uh, he was one of the glories of the French Air Force in 1918. Uh, and still, uh, at the end of the war, he never achieved uh, the prestige of Georges Guinmer, who was to remain the iconic figure of the French military aviation until today. So these are, uh, Guinmer also had uh, these uh, polarizing effects on uh, the, the, the memory in France and abroad. And uh, René Fong remained in the, sh in the shadow of it. Uh, and uh, he wasn't the national hero. Billy Bishop, although it was debated after the war, uh, and uh, his memory uh, is still contested, uh, was the Canadian hero, uh, the national hero. In France, that was Georges Guinmer and not uh, René Fong. That's a, yeah, that's a fascinating uh, story. And yeah, you can be good at some things and not as good at others in life. Um, right. That's our list of questions for today. I really want to thank you for coming on and answering them. If our viewers out there, or actually I should say, if our listeners out there um, are interested in finding out more about the air war, about the topics that you have um, talked about and the topics that you are researching, where can they get their hands on something that you've written? 
Oh, uh, for my part, uh, so I wrote a book uh, about a biography, a critical biography of René Franck. Uh, it's not much about, not as much about uh, his first air war than uh, the rest of his life and uh, his memory. Uh, it's and it's in French, so maybe uh, it will uh, be uh, a bit disappointing for uh, many of our listeners. But uh, so we can find this biography, and there is uh, an article which is in English uh, and uh, free online in a very good uh, Franco uh, uh, in French and in English uh, review, academic review. But uh, it's quite easy to find. So the, it is in uh, Nassel, so maybe we can put the link. Uh, yeah, we'll put the link up. Good. Uh, and it's also about René Fong, but uh, more about the construction of him uh, as a public uh, figure and as an airman. And it's in English, so everybody can read it. And uh, in uh, this academic review, there are plenty of articles about aviation and uh, uh, in French and in English. So it's also interesting for anyone who has an interest in uh, aerial stuff. Okay, great. Um, thanks uh, so much for coming on, Damien. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much for your invitation again.